This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jiu-Jitsu black belt and instructor Charles Harriet. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Charles's parents' immigration story from Jamaica, his journey into the martial arts, American Kempo, kickboxing, his journey into Jiu-Jitsu, the paradigm shift he had from student to teacher, his leap of faith out of the corporate world, traveling, and so much more. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Charles Harriet. Enjoy. Charles, I want to firstly say thank you so much for taking the time. We just did some rolling here in BJJ Swamp Academy in Gainesville. Um, So I want to thank you firstly for all the times that you've helped me during this. Um, Last time we rolled, you were telling me about being staying attached to your partner. So everything that you tell me, I promise you, does stay in. Um, And uh, yeah, secondly, for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No problem at all, man. So. So I don't know a whole lot about your early life. So I would love to start at the very beginning. We'll walk through your journey into martial arts, your your career side, 
and then the kind of wanderlust element that combined with jujitsu. So beautiful. Let's start at the very beginning. All right. Where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, both my parents um, are naturalized American citizens from Jamaica. And so I was born in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I have two sisters. So my elder sister is four years older than me and my younger sister is two years younger than me. And when I was three turning four, my parents had the brilliant idea of taking me to see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, the live action movie. And I fell in love with that. And I was doing really crappy cartwheels down the movie theater walkway. And I told my parents that I wanted to be a ninja. And my father found a Taekwondo instructor who was teaching lessons out of his garage and enrolled me in there. And that was the beginning of my martial arts journey when I was like about to turn four. It was like right before my fourth birthday. And I was in a garage throwing really bad kicks and punches and thinking that I was a ninja. And I used to wear my headband because the karate kid had the headband. I used to wear, I was like, you did not have to wear a headband. I was like the only kid in class. Like, I want, I want to wear the headband. So like that was the beginning. And then fast forward two years after that, um, unfortunately my father passed away. Um, and quickly, I was kind of thrust in this position where like family members were letting me know that I was like the man of the house and all of this and that. And the only um, kind of other father figure I had in my life at that point was my Taekwondo instructor. And I, we returned from the funeral in Jamaica to find out that he has sold the school because he has just gotten married and his new wife has told him that he needs to get a real job. So he sold the school and became a prison guard. I don't ever know what happened to him. I haven't talked to him since then, but he was really nice. He came along, my mom, him, and the new owner of the school to talk to me and like kind of convince me not to quit. And because it wasn't even Taekwondo, it was a karate instructor who took over the gym. And I was really like sad and upset about the whole thing. And they convinced me to stay. I ended up staying doing that. The style of karate they did was called American Kempo. So from age six all the way through when I graduated, um, high school at 17, I did that. Um, along the way in that process, I played school sports, did the normal stuff, was a pretty, pretty like, I guess if I wasn't an athlete, I definitely would have been considered a nerd. So I kind of got away with not getting as much of the nerd stigma because I also played sports, but like academically, I was very like studious, so to speak, because my Jamaican culture. Like what you hear about with Jamaican culture is a lot of like reggae and Bob Marley and like Rastas and stuff, but like a heavy part of the Jamaican immigrant culture in America is an obsession with academics. And my parents were very, very much pushers of like, we'll support you whatever you want to do, but you got to do your school and you got to take it seriously. And anything that you do in life, try to make sure that you're not just the best, that you're like 10 times better than the next guy. That was the, the ethos of my household. Um, just will support you just just give it your best and so I kind of was very heavy into my academics but I also was heavy still into the martial arts because it was the the one constant in my life and so at the age of 13 I became an instructor at that gym I got to like assist teaching classes and teach some karate classes up through my teens and I, I loved doing that and teaching in general was always something that I loved I tutored some of the other kids in school because it just always kind of came easy to me 
And then from there on, I ended up uh, going to university. But I don't know if you want my entire like granular life story, Leeds. I'm going kind of heavy into this. Yeah, no, and actually, I'd like going heavy, but let's go back for a second. I'm obviously an immigrant to this country. Your parents coming from Jamaica. When, when, for example, Jamaicans made it to England on the Windrush, that was a somewhat negative chapter of British history. They weren't received very well. Now you go to you know to to London, for example. There's beautiful you know Caribbean culture all over the place. What was their immigration experience? I mean, obviously you lost your dad early, but did your mom story tell about e- um, either the pros or the cons? It was a, a mixed bag. I guess something that could speak to that is the fact that if you listen to me speaking, right, I don't have a Jamaican accent. I don't speak Patois. Um, that's partially because my mother and father found that because they had accents, it was harder to find work because they were seen as foreign. They weren't like, there was definitely stories of, of, of discrimination and things that happened to them. It was, you know, it was the 70s when they got here. So not, it wasn't like it was the 40s, but it's also not 2023 either, you know? So, um, but that's part of why my mother was very heavy on, you need to speak properly, you need to conduct yourself with dignity and respect. It was a very big piece of it. Um, I would say that there were definitely areas, like the same way how, like you said, in London, there's areas that kind of became Caribbean areas. The same is true in the U.S., but my parents chose, my father was a professional tennis player in Jamaica and was obsessed with tennis. So that's why I ended up, we ended up um, right outside of a city called Boca Raton, Florida in Palm Beach. And the reason we ended up there is because he was obsessed with tennis and he was scouting around places to move because they first moved into Miami and they actually had someone break into their house and they were like, we can't keep living here with this crime we need to move north and so they were looking at various areas and they found there was just a wealth of tennis courts in Boca Raton Florida and they found a house that had a tennis court in the community and for him that was that was it right and so they, they ended up moving into Boca Raton um horribly uh, shortly before he passed away my elder sister was being taught tennis she's the eldest and I was being taught tennis as well I was at that kind of young, do whatever your elder sibling copycat phase. And she just, she got into an argument with my father one day and decided that she was done playing tennis. And I was next to her. And I remember there was some show coming on a Nickelodeon that in the back of my head, I was like, I want to go watch this show. And so when she quit, I was like, I quit too. I want to go home and watch my show. <laughs> <laughs> Not realizing like how big of a deal it would be. Because like I know now like being a grown man and like having my passions and obviously one day wanting to share them with my kids that like that probably broke his heart. Um, he brought us home and went to my mom. was like, they're not my kids. They don't want to play tennis. Like I never took it personally or anything, but I, it's one of those things that I remember because ironically, my younger sister was too young to be taught tennis by my father. And she ended up being the only one of us that went on and actually played tennis in high school and was actually quite good at tennis because she was going through our, uh, and she's like, how come, you know, Charles and, and Melissa have tennis rackets and I don't? And so then she ended up becoming a pretty good tennis player, ironically enough. Um, but uh, I would say there was the situation, which I think is very true. I had no idea that there was the stereotype of, uh, I guess, kind of Jamaican industriousness. Because shortly, if I fast forward the story a little bit, after I had graduated college, I ended up in a situation where I had three jobs. And one of my coworkers at one of my jobs was like, wow, you're really doubling down on this Jamaican thing. And I'm like, what? What, 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 are you, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, every Jamaican that I've met has like three, four jobs for some reason. As I, don't, I, like, I had no idea because it wasn't a stereotype that I had learned from my family that like there was a stereotype about being Jamaican and having lots of jobs. And so that, I guess, kind of hardworking ethos was something that definitely got passed through to me because I knew growing up in America 
that, for example, everyone always asked me where I was from, even though I was born here. And I would say Florida and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, but, but where are you from? Like, uh, from here. <laughs> like, this is where I was born. But I also know that there would be cultural things where like just even with the types of food that I ate growing up. And so I think they also kind of ended up having an affinity towards a lot of the other Caribbean immigrant populations that were in my area. Because in, in where I grew up, there wasn't that many other Jamaicans, but there's a lot of Spanish-speaking people, a lot of Venezuelans, a lot of Colombians, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, you name it. And most of the people that I ended up um, making close friends with growing up, uh, even some of my friends that were from Guyana, Trinidad, like, were not Jamaican because there just weren't that many Jamaicans in my area. My family friends were Jamaican who were usually down in Cooper City, Pembroke Pines area, about an hour south of where I lived. And we'd go see them because where my mother's office was, where she worked. But um, I always kind of had an affinity because I'd go over to their house and I'd be like, oh, we eat plantains. They eat plantains. They call it platano, but like it's the same food or like rice and beans. Like the flavoring was close to my family and that was more familiar. Whereas I went over my uh, other friends' houses who were from, you know, kind of more traditionally American houses, like just the food was very different. Like it's, and my mom didn't just make Jamaican food. She made Italian food. She made Mexican food. My mom was a really good cook. So because of the culture, she really believed in home cooked meals. So every day, even though my mother was working hard because she's a single mom, and my grandmother had moved in and was working hard, there was a home-cooked meal. And so I was—I had the culture shock when I went over some friends' houses where, like, their normal meal was Chef Boyardee or Kid Cuisine microwave meals. And I was just confused because Boca Raton, Florida is a very affluent area. And my family was not very affluent. We weren't poor by any means, but we were not mansion-rich. And some of the people at the school I was raised in were mansion rich because I was lucky enough that when I was very young, um, I took some sort of aptitude test and I scored very highly and they, I ended up getting some partial scholarship to this very prestigious school called Boca Raton Christian School. And so it was a very kind of ritzy school, very um, great quality education that I was getting. But most of the other people that were at that school were either from, you know, very, very wealthy families or they were children of the teachers at the school. Because one of the perks of being a teacher at the school was that your children got to go there for free. So the only people in my kind of socioeconomic status at the school were the children of the other teachers there. Or other people in my situation where they had some sort of a, a scholarship. And so when I went over to their houses, it was very, very culturally different. And so I knew that my family had a different culture and that we were different. But I also knew at the same time that like, I wasn't fully Jamaican because whenever I went to Jamaica a few times as a child, I would meet my cousins in Jamaica and, and people who were raised in Jamaican culture of that era. Like, okay, well, I'm not Jamaican like they are. Like, I can't speak Patois. I get made fun of. I get told I sound Irish when I try and speak Patois. <laughs> and so, like, I'm not that. But, like, here in America at the same time, like, when I'm in America, I'm not American. I'm something else. But when I leave America... I get to be American. I remember I first felt that as a kid and it got reinforced as I began to travel later as an adult, which was the feeling of like, it's kind of funny that I'm most considered most American once I leave America. I, I can actually relate to that. I mean, I'm, I'm British born and bred till I was 27. Then I started traveling and, you know, it took me around the world. And then I lived in Japan, Japan for a while and we'll get to Osaka because that's where I lived. Um, and then obviously America, but I spent some time in Australia and so now I've been here 20, God, I think it's 21 years now, 22. 
And so to people here, I sound English. To people at home, I sound American. So I'm stuck in this limbo where, every, as you said, every time I'm in the opposite country, I sound like I'm from the where I just left, but not when I'm actually in that country. So it's an interesting kind of paradox. Well, the irony is now after the travel, my, my, my accent has changed because now at this point, like I speak English, I'm conversational in Spanish, and I'm survival in like German and Japanese and a couple other languages just from the traveling. But then also... I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for all these years and I, most of my coaches were Brazilian and they have a certain way of speaking their English, kind of singing. If you ever had like a, a Brazilian coach that's from certain parts of Brazil, they, they sing their English a little bit. And I picked that up. I realized that my I'm very, very good at mirroring speech patterns. So if I hang out with somebody who English is not their first language and I feel that I should be shifting my vocabulary so that I'm not speaking beyond what they what they know... I'll start speaking broken English because I have some friends from travel. Some of my my dearest friends, like my friend uh, Marius in in Ireland, he's um, Polish. We moved to Ireland. He has a very heavy Polish accent, and he lives in Ireland. And so the English even that he's mirroring isn't even American English. And so I hang out with him for a day, and I'm speaking like him. And my girlfriend will tease me. She's just like, "Who are you right now?" Like this is. <laughs> but because of all those times of kind of or same thing when I taught English. And in other places where English wasn't their first language, whether it be Germany or Israel or other spots, I was told by the class, like, hey, like, we love your teaching, but we need you to slow down. You're speaking too fast for us to understand. And the people who are having a hard time are too proud to tell you, but I'm going to tell you, I understand you. But like some people here only speak English at jujitsu like once a week, twice a week, three times a week. So they're, they're not going to be able to absorb at that speed. So I slowed my English down. So then I come back to America and I start talking like Obama with the really <laughs> long and drawn out pauses between what I'm saying. So like you end up with having this kind of hodgepodge uh, of speech patterns. And so like I'm 100% a chameleon in that way um, when it comes to just understanding, all right, this is the, the manner of speaking that's appropriate for this time and place. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think the, the enemy of prejudice is just traveling. You it's know? so true because... There's some places that I've been that, like, when I was growing up, were war zones, right? Like, I, I've got, I've been lucky enough to get to go to Cambodia. Like, it was a war zone. When I was a kid, I was learning about what's happening in Cambodia. Like, there was a literal genocide going on. Or even, like, I went to Belgrade, Serbia, and I've met people from, from Bosnia and, like, all these places that when I was a kid, like, on we watched on CNN, like, wars happening. And it would be like, well, I would, how could you go there? It's not safe. But I've, I've, obviously the wars aren't hot right now in those places. I've been there, but like anywhere on earth, no matter how poor or bad that the TV convinces you it is, there are people there living their lives day in and day out. And at the same time, when if you look at the stats, like there's parts of America that are just as bad as those areas that we're worried about. Because I grew up in the time when like, if you watch the TV long enough and it got late enough, that those infomercials would come on. It would be the, the African boy with the fly in his eye and for five cents a day or something ridiculous like that. And they'd have you convinced that these parts of the world are just every ounce of everyone is suffering at all times. And we're, aren't you so happy and lucky that you were born and raised in America? And I have to be happy and lucky that I was born and raised where I was because my parents made the decision for having a better life, that they were to leave the opportunities that they had before them in Jamaica to come to America due to what was going on politically at the time with Michael Manley and the shift of power in Jamaica and their attempts to 
made the com- country communist. Now, the country didn't actually become communist, but a lot of people left Jamaica and a lot of the intellectuals of Jamaica fled, as you saw, to England, Canada, and the U.S. And so my parents made that decision to give me a better life. And so I do appreciate that, but traveling has also let me realize that like, you can live a happy life most places on this earth, but most places on this earth also have their problems, right? There's places... Like, there's places where you would think are less fortunate than America, but if you get hit by a car and you survive, that they will nurse you back to health and you're not bankrupt for the rest of your life afterwards. Whereas in the U.S., you get hit by a car and you don't have insurance, you're paying that hospital probably for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Or cancer or... Or even worse, like uh, like being hit by a car actually is, is significantly better. If you get... One of those diseases, cancer or lupus, or one of those things that that you have to be inpatient for months and years on end and slowly die. Those, so like every country, American has. We have our healthcare problems. We we have our problems here, but every country has the things that make me absolutely love them. And every country has things that are like hmm. a funny thing that made me fall like that. I appreciate about America after traveling. It's two things that I really appreciate America. One, I gained appreciation from going to Japan. And one from going to continental Europe. And these are both places that are beautiful. I love Japan. I love how clean it is. I love how safe you are. How there's virtually no stranger crime. And I say no stranger crime because there is crime in Japan. It's just very Japanese. It's organized. There's, there, the Yakuza are real. There is crime in Japan. And there is other parts of crime in Japan. But generally speaking, if I left my laptop on a train station platform, which I did, and I missed the train and I come back... 10 minutes later, it's still there. No one stole my laptop. That's amazing. But there are no trash cans in public. So if you want to throw something away, you got to carry the trash with you home and throw it away. Now, this isn't a big deal. But as an American, I'm accustomed to if I go and I have uh, some ice cream or a sandwich or whatever, that I can just throw the trash away there. And the fact that it's very hard to find trash cans in Japan is just mildly inconvenient. But as an American, I'm used to that. Other thing is, when I was in Netherlands, in kind of a, I wouldn't say fully suburban, but not a truly urban area. It was like, not country, but like, not American suburban, but like, kind of residential area. There's no bathroom. And places that I'm accustomed to as an American hunting for bathrooms aren't successful. Like in America, if I want to go to the bathroom, I can go to a grocery store. There will be a bathroom for me there. I can go to a department store. There will be a bathroom there. I can go to a shopping center. There's a plethora, pretty much any place, even a tire place, any place that is selling some service in America, we have public restrooms that are available to people. In Netherlands, I went to a grocery store, ran in circles, no restroom. I went to a shoe store, no restroom. You know, poop in a boot. <laughs> to the point where like, <laughs> I, and I'm looking like a crazy person, like, Luckily, I didn't have to poop. I just had to pee. But I'm still like looking very strange, kind of holding my crotch, walking around, looking for a restroom because it just isn't a thing. Now, mind you, I was informed by my Dutch friends later. As I planned about this before, they were like, hey, hey, Charles, like go to a bar. Pubs have restrooms because people who drink alcohol have to pee a lot. This is very logical. It makes sense. But that's not my go-to. I, if I'm looking for a public restroom here in America, I'm not going to a bar. That's like the last place, the most disgusting restrooms that you're going to find. Like, I'm not going to a bar for that. It's just these little differences and things I appreciate. And they sound really small, 
but I'm finding more and more like those those little things you enjoy are like some of my favorite things about about travel because there's certain things that I love about other places and places that I can appreciate about home. I don't. I've met people who leave America and then all they do is shit on America. They're like, ah, it's so much better over here, and they have those rose-colored glasses about wherever they're visiting. And I might have been that way a little bit the first time I traveled, but then you realize you talk to people, they're like, they've got their own gripes. Like, if you're there for a day, they're just going to show you the hot spots and the cool stuff, and they're going to show you what they're proud of in their town. But hang around a little longer. Like, everywhere has their problems. I've, I've yet to meet any place on earth I've been where everybody is like, yeah, this is great. No problems at all. A-okay. Because if that's the case, you're you're not talking to everybody. There, these people that you're staying with might have a charmed life, but there's usually a cost. There's usually someone who's not okay. <laughs> 100%. I've had guests from all over the world, people that spearheaded the decriminalization of drugs in Portugal, um, prison superintendents from Finland, I'm mean, sorry, from Norway, educators from Finland, all the, all the people that are kind of at the forefront of what that country is known to do really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you couple humility, which is something that we struggle with in the US because we'd say we're the best at everything, yeah. and I think that we are great at some things and we definitely need to swallow our pride and learn from other people. But if we take the best of each of the countries, including the US, yeah. and we share it around the world you know the rising tide of all ships i completely agree i completely agree um it's funny that you mentioned this because those are some really amazing things right because the uh that cool problem they had that they didn't have enough people to fill those prisons in the scandinavian countries and how they've proven that decriminalizing uh drug addiction and treating it as an illness versus as a as a crime has been like Portugal has it imploded, right? It's not anarchy. There's not fire in the streets. It's the opposite. You know, like people are, are realizing like, oh, like this person is in pain. Like they're not, a, they're, they didn't decide one day that they want to, you know, be on the streets, like hooked on, on meth or, or, or heroin. Something else messed up probably happened. And they unfortunately reached for the wrong release valve to try and self-medicate. And then things didn't work out. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even if you think a bit financially, if you take an addict and then you put them in prison, you've taken someone who, you know, let's say that they're struggling, so they're probably on welfare at some point If in this example. Yeah. So they're using tax and then you put them into prison you're where you're using tax. But you take someone who's struggling with addiction and you help them heal and they go back to work. Now you've taken someone who was using tax into someone who's paying tax. Yep. So even if you don't care about humans, which you should, fiscally, it makes sense that way too. No, I like that you did that because I'm always a big fan of that because I know like it's, it's putting yourself outside of yourself because as humans, we tend to think like, I have this set of morals, so, so does everybody. But no, like there's some people who care about the human factor and, are, and, and they're very empathetic. Other people are like, it's just brass tacks. You need to have personal responsibility and blah, blah, blah. And we don't want to make things fine. If we're just going to be cold, heartless pragmatists, it's not actually, it's not actually pragmatic to spend all of our money putting everybody in isolation. It's really not to mention that like the mental health of the people, because Anything that you do, like there's the mental health of the people that are imprisoned, but then I know very few people who have taken up jobs 
in the penitentiary having to be a prison guard or prison warden or any of those things who don't experience some uh some mental and experiential damage from being in that tense conflicted and angry environment all day every day day in and day out where they're worried that the people around them are fictitiously or actually out to get them because you know like you you've deprived someone from of their liberty and freedom and mind you these people have done crimes to get in there ostensibly if they weren't wrongfully convicted but it's still an adversarial relationship where there was definitely if you go back just 20 30 years in this country like you could make something of yourself in prison you could learn a trade you could get a college degree there were all these programs so you came out and didn't go back which have unfortunately I think mostly been pretty gutted at this point. Yeah, and even the addiction programs, I think a lot of them have been kind of scooped out too. Um, I want to get to the American Kempo. Yeah, I was big into martial arts. It was the Karate Kid that really got yeah, me into it. I'm movie. a little bit older than you, and then I mean, I had Bruce Lee posters everywhere. I had, even had a Wing Chun dummy. I had no idea yeah. how to use it. I would just kind of like fling my arms into it. I get it. But um, I used to read all the. It was the British martial arts. Um, Combat was one. Martial arts magazines. I think martial arts monthly or something i forget now but when i think of american kempo is that ed parker yep and that was elvis's style wasn't it yeah yeah yeah. ed parker was a, a hawaiian guy i believe i believe isn't that or he moved to hawaii i don't remember i should probably know this but um and yeah elvis was one of his most he gave elvis the honorary black belt and he had the american kempo patch on one of his performing outfits it was definitely a wild time um all that's before i was born obviously but these are just the uh, the legends you hear from your your coaches growing up the interesting thing about American Kempo is that even though it is a traditional martial art and they all have their flaws, there's a lot of good in them. A lot of the power principles and ideas of motion and stuff that's in Kempo and the ideas, I still use to this day in my jiu-jitsu. Because one of the, I don't know about every style of karate, but because it's a, it was an American style that was very Y-oriented, even though you're not going to go because the nature of the art is that it has um, a series of, of katas or forms, a separate series of katas or forms that are made for kids. At least there were. I found out later that wasn't even part of Kempo. It was just the owner of my gym had taken this universal kids program that everyone was doing at the time and just taught it to us and told us it was part of Kempo. It wasn't. But the big thing that is Kempo is these uh, self-defense techniques, right? Because self-defense was the thing of the era. It's I think it was partially a branding maneuver, so people didn't get sued. No, we're not fighting. We're doing self-defense. Because if you look at almost anybody in any martial art who does sparring, who actually does fight, at the end of the day, like, you're you're fighting. Um, Now, we want to have the the mental values that you're taught to kids, right? Respect, honesty, discipline, self-control, etc., And I think that most owners of child-focused martial arts programs understand that the parents of their students have no desire for them to be world champions in whatever martial art is. Um, Their parents want their kid to stop talking back to them. They want their kid to be responsible. They want their kid to be respectful. They, they, They want the internal values of the martial art. And at least for me... It was very clear that the the gym I came up in, because you you could debatably call it a McDojo by today's standards, but I, I I don't think that it was. I think that the style itself, and obviously I'm going to be a little biased, because at least thinking about what I learned and how applicable it was, 
the basics, the punches, kicks, elbows, knees, the stances, the footwork, the timing that I learned in that martial art that then I used in both point karate and then later on kickboxing, they worked. They And we would regularly spar. Now, mind you, was I, with the hand techniques I had, going to beat someone who had been boxing? Absolutely not. My hands were garbage back then. They're slightly less garbage now. Um, but we sparred and we sparred every week. And even if it's just kids sparring as point sparring, and then as you became a teenager, you were allowed to do continuous sparring, which was pretty much kickboxing by another name. You know, we were, we were kickboxing. And then later on, as um, I got older, we were allowed to do Muay Thai sparring. So we were allowed to do leg kicks. And so like, for me, it was kind of a cool thing where what started out as a kid as a clever game of tab and of tag and foam dipped gloves and, and feet kind of became actual fighting without me having to be a brain damaged 16 year old, right? Because because of the fact that we're just playing tag, now mind you, we were punching as hard as a six year old or seven year old could, but with the padding and the protection, like there really wasn't much of people getting seriously injured. Um, at least when I was younger, I actually did. I say as I say that I'm like a memory just popped in. Um, I was unfortunately part uh, of an accident in training that did severely injure one of my training partners. I was 13 and, and he was 16, but that was few and far between. There weren't. Um, it wasn't like everyone was getting you know concussions every day. Um, accidents do happen in a in a combat sport, even in point sparring. But I think that that actually, I think I was doing continuous at that point in time. But long story short, what, in my opinion, makes Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA and kickboxing and Muay Thai and all of the martial arts that I think that have a bit more respect post-UFC is just the fact that they are being applied against a fully resisting opponent. It's not the art itself that I think is any better or worse. I think it's simply the addition of realism to the training. Once you add the idea of this person is going to be aggressive, this person's going to be strong, this person's not going to let you do the move, it definitely improves your ability to train. Which isn't to say that martial arts that don't have that are entirely useless, because to this day, I'll still steal stuff from martial arts like that. Like, I do moves that I learned from watching Aikido. If you go back and watch Shinya Aoki, he was doing Aikido moves and snapping people's arms for a little while there in Japan. And so they those, these moves work. It's just... If you're preparing for prize fighting, you don't do a traditional, you know, kata-based martial art. You you can gain skills because you're still going to be in better shape, have better coordination, be more prepared to strike and fight than a person who doesn't train at all. Which, if I remember correctly, in the 90s and early 2000s, that was the advertisement. The advertisement was that you're being prepared to defend yourself against an untrained person. And I think in solving that problem... They do a decent job if that's but in the age where it's become almost fashionable to train martial arts, well, the average guy at the bar might know something. So suddenly it's not going to be quite as easy. This person has at least seen UFC. They at least understand that if I just fall on this guy, he probably is not going to punch or kick me, even if he's got no grappling, just someone who's played football. Like, if you've ever tried to grapple a, a high-level collegiate or a professional American football player who's a lineman or a linebacker, their sense of balance, coordination, and timing is impeccable. Now, they're not going to necessarily beat a trained grappler, but 
if all you've ever done in your life is say a traditional martial art with punches and kicks and you're trying to defend yourself from a 300 pound NFL lineman I think it's going to go badly mm-hmm. it would for me <laughs> I think it's going to go badly for for most people and I think that I especially when I was young I thought I was a ninja because I learned from whatever medium I was reading or, or watching at the time that ninjas began their training at four years old and I began my training at four years old so I'm I'm a ninja and so I genuinely believed up through elementary and middle school that I was unstoppable, that there was no possible way that I could lose anything involving fighting because reasonably I do this every day because I did train every day. Every day after school I trained and I trained on Saturdays. I only didn't train on Sundays because my family had me going to church. Otherwise I would train on Sundays. And so for my entire childhood, I've been doing this thing, playing this game of tag at that point in time. And then later on more, I had a sense that why wouldn't I win? And, but because of the nature of the style, there's every style has its gaps. I never liked punching. I was really powerful at legs and I, and I was very good at doing kicks, especially side kicks and round kicks. And I didn't fathom the idea that the fact that I hadn't done boxing and wasn't very good at it would be a problem. And as I went on and would, was always very comfortable cross training, I would train with people who were boxers. And I'd be, oh, it really sucks when this guy steps inside and punches me in the face. This is, this isn't fun. I don't like this very much. I should get better at that. And then later on, when I came up here to uh, college, uh, midway my college, I went to an MMA gym and they dropped me in the ring against one of their pro fighters the first day. And I did decent against the first one who was a boxer. I kicked him a bunch and that kind of scared him. He punched me a bunch. That kind of scared me. Felt pretty even. Like, all right, look at me. My traditional martial arts have served me well. Second person they dropped me was a wrestler. He'd only been training for three years. At this point in time, I'm like, 20, 21 years old, maybe. And so I've been training at this point, depending on how I do my math, like almost 20 years I've been training, you know, 15, 16, 17 years, depending on if you're going to count me training in a garage at four as actual training. But um, he's been training three or four years. And he just double-legged me and double-legged me and double-legged me and double-legged me. There's nothing I could do about it. And I was like, what have I been doing? Because mind you, because I actually had a pretty forward-facing uh, karate studio towards the end of my time, after the age 16, I think, they had what we called ground fighting. So we were trying, we were starting the grapple because our, our, the owner of the gym kind of had a sense that like he had to keep us from quitting because we'd been training for so long. So not, I, not everyone was like me training since they were four, but like that, we, that people need to learn new things. So we did some Kali on our knees. I did stick fighting. We did a little bit of judo. He would have seminars where a judoka would come in or we had this MMA guy come in who, uh, his name was Trevor Sherman and he did the MMA seminar for us. And so we knew basic positions. I knew Keiza Katami, I knew side control, which I think he called cross, cross mount. And we knew a few positions and I knew how to do a guillotine, but we didn't even call it the guillotine back then. I think I called it, they called it the anaconda because I didn't know that in the guillotine that your arm was what was submitting them. I would just squeeze them as hard as I could with my legs and people would tap. So, and I thought that I was doing guillotine right. I thought I just had to hold their heads so they didn't get away. Like my understanding of grappling was so like, like beyond Mickey Mouse because the only people I had to grapple down there were other people who were karate guys. And so like I was the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. It's like I was the best grappler at my non-grappling school and my best technique was a headlock. 
I would just headlock people and I would win. And so I thought I could grapple. So when I was in the ring, I was, like, oh, I was just going to do a head. And then I met actual grapplers. And I was like, oh, oh, this is a whole different thing. Like as obsessed as I've been with punching and kicking for all these years, they've been with strangling people and positions. And apparently there's more to it than just doing a headlock. <laughs> I had the same kind of journey. I started martial arts a little bit, a lot later than you, but probably like mid-teens, I think I was. Got into taekwondo for a tiny bit, then got into Shotokan for a while, um, and then got into the w, no, WTF, so the ITF taekwondo. Actually did well. I mean, won national tournaments, all kinds of stuff. And then what was next? Boxing. And Jesus, was that a humbling experience. And then Muay Thai, like, oh, I can't just skip on one leg now because they just kick the other one. And then jujitsu. And it was just like this, you know, you, you do okay and then you get chopped down again. You do okay and you get chopped down. But it's, it's a beautiful um, journey of humility. But it was funny because I, I agree with you, the, especially for kids, the, the semi-contact, the point sparring, I think is great because they're just moving. They're almost, you know, flowing with each other. Conversely, when I started uh, MMA in... Um, in California, it was shootbox, Vandalay oh, Silver, yeah. and those guys. That's a, that's and coach a just asked today, like, how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu? And I said, technically almost 20 years, because that was my first time. Now, it wasn't oh, consistent yeah. at all. 20 years ago was my first exposure. But we learned almost nothing. It was just fight club. You yeah. just kick the shit out of each that's other. That's so true. Yeah, no, my but same it's thing, so like bad. I said, my first day, I was in the cage with a pro. And I never got taught anything at that at that gym. It was, it's a gym here in town called F2. It's not that they couldn't teach because they did teach me things. I learned a lot from those guys. But so many people quit that they stopped teaching new people anything until they'd been there a certain amount of time because it wasn't really a gym that was meant. For, it wasn't a, like this gym that we're in right now. It's to instruct people. That's the point of this. They were a fight team. They were there to have bodies to get better to win their competitions. And then if you didn't quit after a few weeks or months, they'd teach you something. I remember, I, it, I, someone liked me, they pulled me aside, I don't remember who it was, it might have been my friend Doug, who I still, and he's like, hey, 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 you're doing really well. And he showed me how to hip escape. Do this. All right, now get back in there. And then that was how you would be learned. Somebody who had been there longer than you would pull you aside and they would give you a gem. And then you'd get back to the grind. And I do think there's, there's the upside and downside of that method, right? The trial by fire. The upside of that method is that it builds grit. And grit, I think, is one of the most important things, not just in, in martial arts, but in life. Like the ability to take punishment and not mentally break and keep pushing forward is immensely valuable. And mind you, you do mentally break many times along the way, but you know what it feels like. So in the future, when you're feeling that, like, okay, I know what this is. I know what it's like to have someone make me feel claustrophobic. I know what it's like to be so exhausted that I don't want to move and still move. It's valuable. But on the other hand, not everybody is prepared for that their first day. And you lose a lot of people. I saw so many people come through that could have been great at Jiu-Jitsu MMA who quit because they got injured their first day. Because there wasn't the same notion of taking care of your partner. It was... If they can't hack it, they shouldn't be here. Like that, that was the ethos back then. Whereas now, people have realized, oh, these things can be businesses. Yeah, well, so, and this, this training can yeah. bite you on the ass 10 years from now where your memory starts to go. Oh, and, yeah. You know, so I well, think the gym I, wars were a thing. I definitely, 
fortunately or unfortunately, was part of that era. Like, I had zero professional MMA fights. I only had one amateur MMA fight, and I lost. And could I have gone back and done more and not gone out 0-1 at something? Sure, I could. However, at that point in time, I had shortly before that, I had just gotten a promotion at my job. I was making real money. And I was in a situation where I was like, am I going to go here and essentially like knock my college ed- education out of my brain to the point where like I lose not only this thing that I'm doing, but also my day job? Or am I going to take care of myself? And that was part of my shift from obsessing so much about striking and realizing like I can get all the things I love out of striking in jujitsu without having a headache, without having little cuts in my mouth where I don't enjoy my food because I love cooking. And anytime if you spar mouthpiece or not and things get heated, you're going to at least have little, little cuts in your mouth. And I got sick of that. But like, I completely agree with you on the CTE front. I just, I know there's got to be a way, but I know for me at least, I'm lucky like I'm still, obviously I'm talking to you right now. I'm coherent. I don't have headaches. I don't think I have any long-term CTE problems. I've been knocked out one time in my life. Um, I don't, I don't think I have horrible damage from that. But I also know that because I've been in those wars in kickboxing and Muay Thai in the gym, or even MMA in the gym, I, I, I would be, that's the frustrating part for me at that point in time, was like I was hanging with the pros at my gym and doing very well, and then I lost my first amateur match. I'm like, well, how does this make any sense? Um, and that was very psychologically frustrating to me. But I also knew that, like, deep down, like, I don't actually like hurting people. Like, a lot of the things that I've done less in my life is because I've broken the ribs of a good friend of mine with a psychic. I've accidentally, like, I've caused harm to people that I like, and I don't feel good about it. There's some people who are able to kind of tap into that darker part of themselves and be okay with it. And I think... To an extent, you need a little bit of that if you're going to be successful in a, in a game where your opponent is trying to harm you. If you're sitting there like, oh, I don't want to hurt you, and they're like, I want to kill you, you're at a terrible disadvantage. And you'll only be able to win if the skill gap between you and them is very large. At least that's been my experience. I can take care of you. If you're a beginner or even an intermediate and I'm an expert, I can beat you and keep you safe and keep me safe. But if we're both experts... I don't know, unless I find some some angle of the game where I have a big lead over you, I'm not going to be able to both take care of you and take care of me and win. That's going to be really challenging. And so my, I think that maybe 21-year-old me might have still had it. I think back to like how I used to spar at 21. I don't even know if I like liked hurting people. I think I was very blissfully unaware that the fact that I was kicking people in the back of the head might not be good for them. I'm glad you said that be- <laughs> because, firstly, I remember my first ever taekwondo competition and it was me and a friend of mine from my school who got matched up in the first heat. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's just my buddy and I'm all relaxed and he murdered me, yeah. murdered me. It was like, you know, I think it was what, up to 10 in taekwondo back then. Yeah. So it was like 10-0, whatever it was. And so I was like, oh, shit. So the next time, next tournament I fought in, I just was able to turn. But we're talking about, again, semi-contact, tippy-tub yeah. at this point. I did end up doing WTF, which is you could knock them out yeah. with your feet yeah. later in life. But, um, but yeah, but then I had to tap in. But after shootbox and, you know, 
boxing and Muay Thai down in Orlando, I just knew, all right, I'm, I'm not a fighter. And that's okay. I've put myself in a place where, okay, I've, I've had people, some pretty good people, try and knock me out and hurt me and everything, and I survived. So I'm not a giant pussy. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I am not a fighter. I'm not going to masquerade, oh, I could do that if I just, no, no, no. I, as you said, I have chosen my health and my time with my kids and all these other things over it. So even here, they're like, oh, you're going to compete? Like, no, I have competed. You know, I've done a jiu-jitsu tournament with my son. It was awesome. Both of us got silver. Um, I didn't roll with him. <laughs> but, uh, but that was an amazing father-son moment. But it was just, yeah, there's a certain point where you're like, I've done that, check the box. I still train to this day. I love it. I still do striking on a bag in my garage sometimes. But yeah, it's a really powerful thing to look yourself in a mirror and go i would not be a good fire that's okay and i think that for me it's one of those things where like i'm confident that i could be good if i only took matches that i shouldn't be in right like if i get paired up with people that shouldn't be in the ring with me i could do great because the skill gap between me and them would be big enough that i can take care of us but at the end of the day, the whole point is to eventually face someone you is who's actually at your level. And in that moment, there's the person who wants it more is going to win. And I know that I still have it to an extent because I know that at least in, when it comes to jujitsu, with striking, it's less. I don't like harming people. And like I think to me, especially because I have like very specific incidents where like, I have directly caused harm to someone else's future. And like, I, it's not something for what? This was supposed to be fun. We were supposed to be having fun together. And now like you've got broken bones in your face or in your ribs or things. And I, and so like, I don't need more of that on my conscience, but at the same time, like I've been, I've been given both. I've been given the other side from some friends of mine who are like, it's, I think I guess a bit colder, but the whole view is like, Charles, you're being disrespectful to that man by giving him anything less than your best because he signed up to test himself. He didn't sign up, sign up to be taken care of by you. And when I think about that, that's the only way that I'm usually able to turn off the empathy in that moment. And just, you're right, I'm supposed to be trying to win. Now, that being said, especially now in jiu-jitsu, like culturally, jiu-jitsu has, has changed, I'd say, as it gets more professional and there's more money involved. In that there used to kind of be an unspoken rule. I mean, maybe there never, maybe there never was. It's one of those things where like, there's that, that whole like back in my day nostalgia where you pretend things were better than they were. So maybe there never was. But for me personally, giving your opponent time to tap is something that I've always cared about. If... I have a submission on you. I'm going to pause and look at you and be like, hey, this is going to go soon. Please tap before I do something. And even then, depending on the tournament, like with a tournament for a $5 medal, I'm not, I'm not going to break and tear all the ligaments in your knee for a $5 medal. Like maybe I have a strange morality. I might, I might mess your ankle up a little bit for $5 medal because I know you're going to be better in two weeks. But I know the rehab time for a torn MCL because I've torn my MCL. I know the rehab time for torn meniscus. I've torn both of them. And so this medal ain't worth that. And so like I should be good enough 
to strangle you or something, but you should be reasonable enough to tap before your stuff breaks. But culturally, it's becoming more and more common. The guys just don't tap. And then you're seeing these horrific breaks on people's shoulders and elbows and knees. And to me, like, the thing that made me fall in love with jiu-jitsu was the fact that I have a choice of how much force I have to apply to solve a problem. Before I knew jiu-jitsu, if I had to solve a problem that was a physical altercation, I had to strike you. I had to kick you in the leg and the knee and the ribs and punch you in the face. I had to cause you bodily harm to convince you to stop. Whereas the power of jiu-jitsu is like, I can restrain you and cause you minimal harm. In the case of a grappling match, I should be able to put you in a checkmate position where you and I both know you lost. If I can't do that, then in my opinion, it means I don't actually have as much control of you as I think. I don't. I haven't actually won as completely as I can. But now, because of the fact that, like, if I break your leg, it's uh, pretty decisive who won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've I've never liked that feeling, and I've had people who have broken their own leg trying to escape submissions that I was holding them in. I wasn't trying to finish. I was holding on, and they didn't know how to get out. And they did the wrong thing. And I, I hear it. I can feel their leg. Clack, clack, clack. And I'm like, oh, why? And so at least in training outside of comp- in competition, it's debatable. I think that in the competitions for money, when you know that your opponent is trying to break you as well, you should probably be willing to break them too. Part of why I'm not an elite level competitor is that. like, I've been competing a little bit just because I know that by feeling those emotions and putting myself through that again it allows me to better relate to the people that i'm teaching it allows me to to better test out honestly the stuff that i'm saying works i've been trying to create things one of the things that i've loved recently about my jiu-jitsu journey is like i've been a black belt now for over seven years and getting to add to jiu-jitsu getting to have not new moves per se but like my own approach to making people better at jiu-jitsu well, if I say this, it will make you better jiu-jitsu and it will work against a fully resisting opponent. Well, then I should put it on the line. I should say that it actually works. And so I want to, my goal in tournaments these days, it's definitely to win because I want, I'm curious how good I am. I'm 37. But it's also to be like, I want to prove that what I said isn't BS. I want to prove that it actually works. And if it doesn't, awesome. I get to grow. I get to find out, okay, there exists a person because within the gym, everybody knows me. We know each other. I'm making it work on these people. And I travel to other gyms and open mat, but it, there's also a thing of respect. Maybe people are being nice to me. They don't want to hurt me. I don't know. And so I get to competing. I like testing the art. That moves me. I don't like maiming each other. I just, I don't believe that it is necessary to figure out who won the match to, to injure each other. I understand that that requires both people being mature enough to to yield before their limbs break. And that unfortunately, some people just understand, hey, I know Charles doesn't want to break my leg. So I'm not going to tap. And maybe while he's trying to convince himself to break my leg, I escape. I'm going to take those chances. And to an extent, fair play, but to another extent, like, these are the things that make our sport more dangerous. When I hear people say, oh, I used to do jiu-jitsu, but I kept getting hurt, I can tell them now because there's a reason why I drive 
what did I drive, 30 miles each way to come here from Ocala, um, you're at the wrong gym. It's that simple. Now, if you're an 18-year-old you know, high school wrestler and you are determined to be in the UFC, there's a school that's the right fit for you. It's probably going to replicate some of the ones that we just talked about. But if you're a 30, 40-year-old guy wanting to get into it, say you're a police officer, which I want to get into in a second, you know, and you go to a place where it's all you know, young, dumb, full of cum on the mat, you know, which I've been to as well, you know, and you're just like, fuck, every single time, my neck, my ribs, you're not going to go back. So this is the thing I tell people is, you've also got to find that right tribe within jujitsu, find that school and maybe specifically that class that fits you. Yeah, everybody has their different, that's kind of the cool thing about jujitsu, because it's been influenced by so many things, like, if you're really straight edge and you don't like drugs, you probably shouldn't join a uh, tenth plant school, right? Like you shouldn't. You probably shouldn't be going to high rollers, right? If, if if that stuff makes you uncomfortable, that might not be the school for you, right? But at the same time, if you want to go to a family friendly school, find a family friendly. There's family friendly schools, there's MMA schools, there's what's go really hard schools. So let's just chill out, man. Schools. I personally think, at least for me, with my goals as a martial artist, I like them all. I like that my jiu-jitsu is able to go to the school where everyone's very chill and come on, bro, we're just going to flow. I can go and I can roll with them and I'm not going to injure anybody. They can match me up with a 95-pound woman or a 300-pound man and no one has to get hurt. But I also like the fact that, that there still do exist those gym wars, you know, if he dies, he dies schools. I like that I've taught myself enough jiu-jitsu that I can visit those schools. To me, those are the schools. I like to visit a place like that once a month or every couple of months because I don't want to get soft. Like At the end of the day, it is a martial art. However, if I do that day in and day out, I'm going to fall apart. I can't train that way. You're exactly like you said. If you're 21, you're pretty much Wolverine at that point. Like You're, you're going to bed and healing every night, so you can do it. But um, I completely agree that there's so many types of schools. If you like the formality and the pomp and circumstance, then there might be a school that's heavily traditional where you only wear white geese and you like bowing. And if you like that, you know, mysticism and enjoy it, enjoy it. It's, it's very much finding the flavor that you enjoy the best in my personal opinion absolutely for me and i do it still within this gym at the moment um because i'm only blue so i'm still as you said i think there's, there's a lot of value to understand being humble enough to understand that all right once i get to a certain level in jujitsu now i can I feel like i can travel and at least be able to protect like you said protect yourself protect the other person but there's times where i'm like all right i'll roll with when one of our super strong younger guys that never taps to anything and you know tries to murder you every time because you know we have a master's class starting up and and for me i'm doing this for outside the doors that's it and i know this isn't a self-defense school quote unquote but that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking can i strike with elbows here and and so the people that are probably gonna be a nuisance on the street are not going to be 50 year old accountants Nope. They're going to be, you know what I mean? <laughs> so every once in a while, all right, let me see how I fare with this 21-year-old. And we're not trying to kill each other, but there's that athleticism that you only get from a young, you know, enthusiastic man or woman. So it's nice to dip into there. And other times, you know, you've been just destroyed at home, whatever's happened, you're low energy. Then you're like, all right, and I've got guys I can go to. Like, you want to just flow today? You yeah. can just chill out. Exactly. Yeah. So you have that, that spectrum to jump into. 
I think it's super important. I completely agree. And the cool thing is, what I've realized, uh, if you ever have someone at your gym who is a bit too aggressive, but you find yourself that you, you want to you be able to roll with them, kind of remember this. You don't necessarily want to tap them out immediately. Meaning, if, you're 20, if this person is 21 and full of energy and really, really strong and athletic, and you tap them out in 15 seconds... What you just did is motivate them. They're going to go twice as hard now. And if you wanted to relax, that wasn't the way to have relax. Ideally, if you can control them and minimize the amount of explosive movement that they can make, slow the match down, put them in a position where you're ahead of the game and you have weight on your side, you have gravity on your side, and you can slowly take a good three or four minutes to submit them, while maintaining misery for them, not injuring them, but just making sure that they're feeling your weight, then you tap them. They're not going to necessarily want to go crazy because they realize that if they make a mistake and they end up in a bad spot, that you're going to make them suffer for four minutes, and that can calm things down. Now, mind you, that's not going to work if this 21-year-old also happens to be a D1 wrestler or a purple belt because then your blue belt jiu-jitsu abilities might not be enough to outmatch that. But I'm mainly talking about the people who are a little bit less under control because of inexperience. Now, that's if you're not okay talking. One of the things I think that is very underutilized in jiu-jitsu schools is talking. And I don't mean gossiping in the corner. I mean, hey, man. Especially if you have the seniority and right to say this. Hey, man, it seems like you're a little nervous. It seems like... You're a little jittery and nervous and you're taking this a little bit more seriously than is necessary. Like if you want to have a hard role, there's people you can do that. But I think it might be better for you if you want to get better at this, that maybe we just we just calm down a little bit and you try to make calm decisions about what you want to do to accomplish your goals. Because if you need to do something as fast and hard as you can in order to make it work against me, who frankly is not going as fast and hard as I can, It'll never work against somebody actually trying because if I'm only giving you a calm flow place and the only way you can make something work is by tapping into every ounce of your physicality, it's never going to work against a fully resisting opponent. So maybe try to damp down your athleticism during this role and figure out what you're doing. Now, there's a time for athleticism. There definitely is. If we're both putting it on, then yeah, we got to because I learned the hard way at Brown Belt that if I'm trying my best to use no power and I'm facing a brown or a black belt who is using all their power, I'm going to lose. So you need both, but in the beginning, you don't, learn, you, you don't learn how to drive driving 200 miles an hour in a NASCAR. You learn how to drive driving 25 miles an hour in a Honda or something and taking your time to figure out how to control the car. And I think jiu-jitsu is the same way. If you can slow down the roll a little bit, it'll be a learning experience. I'm not saying don't have fun, roll hard, do your thing, but occasionally turn the volume down and it'll help you stop being that spazzy guy if you think you might be the spazzy guy in the gym. I just think back to shootbox again. You know, when we were throwing everything, you were learning nothing. You know, so if you're muscling each other, then you're not really learning. But if you just take, you know, this is my experience, take 30% off, so you're at 70, so you're still using your strength. You're not just a, you know, a wet noodle. Um, you're able to now, it becomes more of a chess match. And if you stay in the same position, this is what I'm finding at Blue Belt, for 
three, four, five minutes, that's stalemate. So take your foot off the gas, allow them to maybe even get a better position and then try and sweep. And, you know, you're going to get so much more out of that than saying, yeah, I won that because I laid on top of them for five minutes. I completely agree with that if you trust this person not to harm you. So I will give all that room to the people who I know aren't going to knee me in the face the second I let them out. Because there's some people who, when they've been getting controlled, they panic. And I might be better than jiu-jitsu, but my face still hurts when you elbow it. I got, I got poked today. <laughs> and so I will let people out to work if those people have shown me that when I let them out, I don't get a black eye out of it. So unfortunately, if someone has shown you that you can't trust them not to punch you in the head, uh, they might be someone you got to give a boring role to. And, and Or, like I said, have that conversation like, hey, I can keep you here for the rest of the round. Or I can let you out. <laughs> but you got to promise me you're not going to flail and punch me in the head. Communication. <laughs> well, we, you touched a second ago on, on control and something I wanted to ask you. There's all these conversations about law enforcement and there's all these horrific videos of basically undertrained officers and again that could be their own lack of, of ownership it could be a complete lack of support from their department a lack of understanding of where the bar should be etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm not picking on the individual solely but you know the the three cops trying to restrain one person and failing the the one that turns into a boxing match where they're literally squaring off with someone they're supposed to be cuffing it seems to me wrestling judo jujitsu you know that kind of area of martial arts seems to be the most appropriate especially for and i don't think most people appreciate this an altercation that you're not trying to just win but you have to restrain them while people are watching and filming and put them in cuffs like i have problems just trying to get a, a choke or a tap no matter getting one arm cuffed and the other arm cuffed so through this journey of jiu-jitsu what is your perception of you know, grappling in law enforcement and how how do we continue to to promote that to get more agencies on board? I've been pretty lucky. I've actually taught, um, I don't think I've ever taught at a, uh, at a police department, but I've taught various law enforcement officers over the years from back when I taught American Kempo. I actually, um, yeah, I taught all kinds of stuff back then. Um, from like, cause there's a few of the officers would bring their, their various weapons that they had. And I got to show them how to swing the round. I think it was a fun job for a 14 year old. Cause I remember that for whatever reason they're there, they switched away from, they used to use those, uh, the old nightsticks that had the kind of the tonfa shape. Yeah. The tonfa. Yeah. The handle. And so yeah. that was the thing, but the, uh, Florida department has switched away to the kind of like snap extend stick. And I remember we, we had. For whatever reason, I don't know why I got to help and why they chose to let a 14, 15 year old teach police officers how to hit things. I don't know, but I had the gig and it was awesome. But into now helping various gyms, um, like for example, my friend Phil runs a gym south of Chicago, about an hour south. I'm forgetting the name of the of the town that is um, called Fir Fernali. I can't pronounce it. It's it's an Irish thing. Uh, Fir Fernali Fernida. I can't I can't pronounce it properly. But um, he runs a gym and it's made for law enforcement, the whole idea. And I've been kind of obsessed with the notion of like, um, what do you need to do? And two main things you need to, one, stand up 
right? Because you don't, as a law enforcement officer, you don't want to be laying on the floor getting kicked in the head by a suspect. That sounds horrible. As, as a person in life, you don't want to be kicked in the head by anybody. But, um, and then the second thing is you want to be able to maintain control as efficiently as you can. And so I think by adding that requirement of yourself, of, of personal efficiency, especially because as a law enforcement officer, you're wearing all your gear, 20, 30, 40 pounds of gear sometimes. If all you have is, I'm just going to go really hard, you're going to be exhausted really fast. And so I think there's definitely a place for it. I think that the biggest thing is shifting it because you talk about, earlier you said the word self-defense. And the problem with self-defense isn't the techniques or the moves or what they teach. While there, there are some suspicious moves that are taught by some of these experts, we'll presume and pretend that what they're teaching is actually good. Imagine that every move taught by a self-defense expert was perfect. It's the nature of how it's taught. The nature of how it's taught is, all right, we're going to go away for the weekend and we're going to learn this. And then we're never going to train it again. And we're going to assume that you guys all got it, right? Right. Whether it be women's self-defense, law enforcement self-defense, the notion that I'm going to give you three to six hours, maybe, maybe I'm going to be generous that you're giving a real intensive eight to 16 hours in a weekend. And now you're Batman, I think is, is just laughable. But the people who teach these courses are very, very charismatic. And oftentimes I've seen it. I've seen women I know uh, in the past who have been like, yeah, Charles, I can defend myself now. Like I, I'm, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, what'd you do? Like, are, have you joined a gym? Are you training regularly? No, I, I, uh, they gave me this, this little, uh, little like, like pokey thing that they give them. Oh yeah. They gave me this little cool. thing. And I took a class for three hours and I'm, I'm safe now. Now, to an extent, some of the social things that are taught in those things are really valuable because if you don't look weak, if you don't look like a victim, you're less likely to be chosen to be victimized. And that part of it, I think, is invaluable. However, I think it's very dangerous to essentially put these people in the position that I was in when I was 11 or 12 where I thought I was Superman when I was, in fact, completely untested. And if I've never had to do these things under adrenaline, under stress, and I don't maintain them, maintain those skills, it's going to be very hard to react properly in those scenarios, especially with adrenaline. And even worse, when you see yourself on film, I know that for me, when I'm competing in a jiu-jitsu tournament or an MMA match or any sort of match, and I see people filming, well, in my head, it's like, oh, I hope I don't screw up on camera. Everyone's going to see this. And that adds more adrenaline. Adrenaline is the friend of habituated behavior and the enemy of new things. When your blood pumps, you're not thinking, what was that move that I just learned yesterday? You're thinking, you're, you're going to do what you've been doing for the longest. And if what you've been doing for the longest is punching a guy in the head, you're going to punch a guy in the head. If what you've been doing for the longest is whatever, that's all you're going to do. Or you might just freeze. I don't believe that most police officers, because unless it's their first day in the job, they have had an altercation before. But I think that if you're not confident that this stuff works because you have those, those reps, I think that confidence comes from success. When you're in the gym and you can regularly take down an opponent and you can regularly pin someone to the floor, even if it's just the white belts, right? Say that you're a blue belt level in jiu-jitsu, but you know that if you put a white belt on the floor, you can turn them over to their belly, 
and hold them there. That means you can probably handcuff them. Great. Now get a white belt that goes to the gym. Be a little bit harder. And now maybe try a fellow blue belt and you keep progressing. But the thing is, say you do that once. One one week. Say you train a year and then you quit. In a year, you'll probably still be able to do that. Two years pass, three years pass. You're going to get rusty. I think the biggest thing of whatever methodology is, whether I, I've done striking martial arts and the advantage of striking martial arts is that you don't have to get entangled with someone. If you've ever seen someone who can throw a nasty leg kick or liver kick or punch, you can stop a situation in its tracks. But as you said, you're being filmed and you're going to have to justify to the world why you found, found it necessary to put this person unconscious. And there, it might be valid, right? There's, there's definitely a valid reason to knock somebody unconscious in the situation of being a police officer if that person is, is, is attacking you and trying to harm you or has been attacking someone else. But if there's a situation where, say, that you just simply have to trespass somebody, this person's not violent. This person just is somewhere they're not supposed to be, which means ideally... As a police officer, you should be able to remove them from where they are and take them outside or take them to the police station. But no one should die for that, right? If this person struggles and is annoying, they shouldn't need to be unconscious or be they You should be able to to carry them along and move them. And I think that the more that you practice these things and habituate them, you can be successful. I really do think that the the notion of of educating yourself in general principles of how to move a person. If I want to move a piece of someone, I go to the end of the lever and I move it. If I want to attach myself to someone, I go deep to the core of their body and I attach myself to them. If I want to stand up and someone's trying to hold me down, well, I have to stop them from being able to attach to me while I move into space and get to my feet. That's three sentences. You don't have to know all the moves. I don't think that you need to be a jiu-jitsu ace who can win tournaments and know all these moves. But if you have general principles and you can follow them intelligently... I think that you can successfully do your job and keep things safe. Um, all that being said, I I don't think that it's inappropriate if the situation is needed that you can do it MMA style. Meaning, if this person has a weapon or this person has you know harmed you and they won't put their hand behind their back and you have to punch them in the ribs to have their hand open, I don't think that that is an appropriate use of force. I think that it's going to get you... Now, it's a difference if you keep punching the ribs and, and break a rib and puncture their lung. Well, that wasn't you hitting them in order to make compliance happen. That was you probably trying to kill them or getting your frustrations out. So there's there's a line. Like I think that striking has its place when used appropriately. I don't think that it needs to be the only tool, which is part of what I fell in love with with jiu-jitsu. When I realized that like I I can stop a scenario without having to, to break someone's ribs. I can stop a scenario without having to break someone's arm even. And ironically enough, because of some of the stuff that I've taught, I've been able to um, to use, ironically, I, I do a submission when I have my peels back. I stop choking people because people are really good at stopping chokes. But they're really bad at, at defending hammer locks. So I actually regularly put people's hands behind their back as a submission. Oh, really? As a joke. Like a half Nelson. It'll not even a half Nelson. Just literally, just I just have their hand. And I just keep pulling. Like like the old WWF hammer lock. And I realized that I can do it pretty consistently. And it's 
frankly, like I understand why that's where you put people's hands when you handcuff them. Like it, it works. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your kind of leap of faith out of the corporate world. But before we do, what were the principles and philosophies that kept you into jiu-jitsu and, and made you dive in so deeply when so many people fall off at blue belt, purple belt, wow. etc.? Obviously, I was frustrated about the fact that somebody who only trained two or three years could beat me when I had been training over a decade. That bothered me. But then I think what really got me in there was, I actually didn't answer it earlier, the principles that I was able to borrow from American Kempo, um, the idea of like marriage of gravity, torque, um, leverage, all of those those physics principles, because I, I, I ended up uh, graduating with a degree in physics in the university that I kind of... I liked the idea of being able to apply physics and kinematics. And once I got that realization that like I can really get good at this jujitsu thing and I don't have to get hit in the face. I don't have to be bruised. I don't have to be in pain, but I can still dive in as deeply and be as obsessed as I was other stuff. And I think what happened was I got into judo as well. I ended up getting my black belt in judo, and I started doing choily foot kung fu here in town at um, Gainesville Dojo. But once I got heavy into leg locks, I realized like what I was doing was like a triathlete. I was like, how can I keep all these skills up? It felt like juggling. It felt like okay, I sharpened back up my muay thai, but now my judo is going away. Okay, I brought my judo back up, but now my jujitsu slacking. I got my jujitsu. Oh no. And there's leg locks too. And then I realized just how bad I was at leg locks and how much more there was to learn there. I'm like, there's not enough hours in the day to be great at all these things. And so slowly, cause in the beginning I was truly obsessed with my training schedule. Cause I had like, I was teaching private lessons in, in kickboxing I was tutoring physics uh, to university students, and I had an internship at a natural gas company. I had three jobs. And then once I got made full-time at the natural gas company, then I stopped teaching uh, physics at the university. And then I was just, um, I mean, it was tutoring. I was just, uh, at that point, teaching kickboxing and working at the natural gas company. But then that gym closed down because it was back in the day um, when there was, it was like one of the only gyms here in town and people didn't want to pay dues. Like people would legit sneak in the back door. Like it was one of those situations where like no one wanted to pay dues. And so the gym closed down and then everyone was like Pikachu faced, like, oh, it's like, yeah, if none of us pay dues, then they can't pay rent. Now we have no gym to train at. And so it was a brief moment in this town where everyone was kind of homeless. There was nowhere to train. And one of the gyms decided to start a Valley Tudo program. And I showed up, I'm like, I've never done Valley Tudor. That sounds great. And then I realized, like, it's just a branding thing. And I see all the same guys I've been training with at other places in town here. And I'm like, oh, it's you guys. And um, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I really think the leg locks was a thing. As I, 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 I circle back to it, like, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get good at this whole other branch of jujitsu. And my regular jiu-jitsu. Because in the beginning, I was just trying to stand back up. My whole game was like, I just stand back up and then I get to punch you again. Or kick you again. That was the game. Just don't, just make your BS jiu-jitsu not work on me. That was the original goal was to become jiu-jitsu proof so that I could kickbox everybody. And all my years of training how to punch and kick really fast would be valuable. 
But then I felt like a fraud. Like I remember I got my blue belt and I felt like a fraud. I was like, I don't even play guard. Like I don't think I've ever hit a guard arm bar. Like I'm, I, I don't know why they gave me this, this, this blue belt. And I started playing guard more. I started, and then I was like, then the world got even wider. Once I, I it was the first time because I had a hard blue belt plateau. I stepped away from my A game entirely. I was like, I have to play guard. Every day I got to play guard. I got to play guard, but I got to play guard, got to play guard. And I started losing more. And that's the hardest thing is realizing, because especially I think at blue belt, you have this pecking order in your head in the gym. This guy beats me. I beat this guy. And I'm even with this guy. All right. And when the guy who you usually beat starts beating you regularly, you're like, oh, I'm getting worse. You never think that that guy got better. It's like, oh, I must be getting worse. I'm horrible. But you have to step back. Of course that guy is going to beat you because you were beating that guy with your best stuff. You got to step into some stuff that you're not great at and you're going to do it wrong. You're going to mess it up and you're going to start losing more. And that was the big step. And that's kind of how I've solved my plateau problems a lot. It's almost always like let's dive in and just play different games. These days, I'm a little bit more sophisticated with it, with different types of specific training and skill development games. And I have more precise ways of of improving when I hit plateaus. But the biggest thing was realizing that keeping track of how many times you tap this guy or that guy and, and all of that, it's not the way. Like, it's... I mean, it, it can be fun. Like, don't be wrong. Like, if you don't have a desire to get better, if you just... I always have to remember this because I've always thought that everyone else is trying to become the best they can. And to a degree, some people are, but a piece of training is just having fun. Some people view jiu-jitsu like pick up basketball. Some people view jiu-jitsu like playing Xbox. To an extent, it's about winning, but to the real extent is just having some fun. And I, I always try to be careful. Like I don't want to foist this serious hermit growth mentality upon people who don't want it because there is a value in jiu-jitsu as community and jiu-jitsu as stress relief and i never want to discount the value of that ironically i think ken was the first person to talk to me he's like hey charles not everybody wants to be the best and i just sat there like what what do you mean why wouldn't they want to be the best (laughs) absolutely um yeah, I've experienced that very thing myself. And, and even with my son, it's funny because I had to take my own advice and apply it to myself. You forget when you're in school, in a, in a jiu-jitsu school, that your friends are getting better at the same spe- speed, or in my case now, faster, because either, you know, either and or, they're younger than you, they just simply hear more, they just get it better. I mean, legs, oh my God, it's my kryptonite. Like, I just still... <laughs> I don't, I we'll still, talk we'll yeah, talk yeah, 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 exactly. But, um, but yeah, but you realize again, I remember someone telling me this a long time ago, stop trying to win the roles. And I get what they mean. I totally get what they mean and stop counting all that stuff. And as soon as I did, like you're, you're on a boat on a stream, you are moving and it may not be a speed boat and you may not be, you know, rafting in the canyon somewhere. But if you get off the boat, you're never going to move forward again. But if you get on, maybe you'll find some paddles. Maybe you'll speed up a little bit. But that's, again, is where the, the humility comes in in jiu-jitsu. Stop looking at everyone else and enjoy your own journey. It's also, I think, learning that this person tapping you out in a given role isn't a representation of they are better at jiu-jitsu than you. 
it's a representation that it's it's just like a hand of cards. You chose to play and do these things. They chose to do these other things. In that moment, in that day, they came together and they ended up on top. To me, it's almost always a lesson. I look at the discrete movements and I'm like, okay, if someone responds this way to this thing that I did, it has these consequences or can have these consequences. And you only get that if you really look at at how the match plays out. My biggest thing is it's okay to lose, but try to lose differently next time. Meaning if they play the same game again with you, right? If they beat you with an armbar and they're trying to gun for that armbar again from the same position, just do something different. And that little bit of changing what you did allows you to learn something. All right, I tried this and I tried that. Were the results different or were they the same? And that can help you grow. The biggest thing that I like doing is um, setting myself little little mini goals. Have you ever played like uh, the old shooting games like Halo and stuff? I, don't, I imagine they still have it in Modern Warfare and the newer shooting games where you can win the death match or whatever, capture the flag. But at the end, you have these little little perks, little bonuses where you oh, five headshots, or like you capture... I like doing that in my jiu-jitsu. It's like, okay, my goal is to get this many sweeps, or my goal is to get two-on-one, or my goal is to get their back, or my goal is even just to be able to count to five seconds between each of my moves, or my goal is to try to do the entire roll on the beat of the music. Like, I'll set all kinds of crazy goals, like little missions for myself, and it keeps the role interesting and fun, and I'm constantly building skills because I'm not just rolling to say, okay, let's beat this guy. And I find that my little side quests are immensely valuable in, in skill building and maintaining the fact that, like, I don't, like, you asked me why I haven't quit. It's never been boring. That's the crazy thing. Since Blue Belt, since that big plateau at Blue Belt, like, I've been getting better at jiu-jitsu the entire time, whether it be learning more moves or learning more concepts or now as a teacher thinking of different ways of conveying jiu-jitsu or shifting a paradigm like i've had these big jumps over the years of things that redefine jiu-jitsu for me like leg locks were one of them and then getting better at my theoretical approach is another one and then bringing my my judo and wrestling kind of together was one and then the idea of defensive postures in jiu-jitsu was another one and then the idea of just just standing up right like um Ironically, I had the uh, I've been teaching a seminar called Just Stand Up all around the world, and I was gonna film it with BJ Fanatics, and then Craig Jones came out with his, and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, his is not at all the same as as what I'm teaching, but just it was such a good name for a for a DVD. But um, just that idea that like, oh yeah, we don't have to stay in guard when we're in guard. I think a lot of us, when we're in guard, we're like, I have to stay down here. I must sweep or replace guard again. When, no, you you can literally stand up, but then also after just standing up all the time, realizing like, okay, maybe sometimes I should also still stay down. Like, it's very fascinating to me that it seems the more that I learn, the more that I understand. There's there's more and there's more, and, it, and it's not just a like Pokemon gotta catch them all of moves. It's it's a lot more than that. I got one more area I want to throw at you, and then yeah. we'll talk about obviously where people can find your yeah, seminars yeah, yeah. and your personal coaching. Um, Something that was very interesting to me when I heard you on another podcast, and I wish I'd written down which one it was so I could give him credit, but uh, I think it was an American. It sounded like a Brazilian gentleman as well, but I don't know if that rings a bell or not. Um, you went to his gym 
on the very first day of his jiu-jitsu. It sounded Brazilian and French. Oh, he's Polish. He's Polish. Okay, I was trying to get <laughs> yeah, the accent, yeah, because yeah, he's got that American lilt now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, those, those gentlemen. Um, and uh, this journey from being in the corporate space, having the things that we're told will make us happy, happy and making the leap of faith, because I did this with this podcast. And it wasn't to get out of the profession. For me, I was driven into it to because I was going to firefighter funerals and I wanted to make a difference and make a change. And ultimately I was at a crossroads and it was, do I stay and possibly be told you can't say these things or do I jump out, terrify my wife financially and then do this? And that's what I ended up doing. Talk to me about where you were in the corporate space and what made you make that jump to follow your dreams. Um, I wish I could say it was that um, direct and also like that responsible like, I worked at the same natural gas company uh, since I was an intern for eight and a half years total. For seven of those years, I pretty much every six months to a year and a half was getting promoted. I was doing really well at every job they gave me. So I was an intern. I was a trade room analyst. Then I was a structured hedging analyst, which is like the financial insurance on the natural gas that we were purchasing then I was a business systems analyst, so like the liaison between the business pe- speaking people and the technical speaking people. Then I was a software developer where I was actually writing the code to build the internal software for us to do some of the operations of the company. Then after that, I was a business system. So I was I was a what's it called? Wow, I'm forgetting it. A, I can't believe I'm forgetting this, a business analytics manager. That's what I was. I forgot the name of the title. But I managed a team of people who would then use databases to query data from the company and make reports to help the business make decisions, as well as automate various tedious tasks around the company with uh, scripts and such. And then finally, I was a natural gas scheduler uh, in the, my last year and a half at the company, which a natural gas scheduler is kind of like uh, the company buys and sells gas, and I kind of route it through the pipelines to get from where we bought the gas to where our customers uh, were burning it. So I did all of those jobs. Um, in the end, I kind of got to a point where, I don't know if you've heard of the, uh, you kind of get promoted up until the, the point where you're no longer amazing. So like every job I had for the first seven years at that company, I did really, really well and was like getting, you know, the five star, like a plus reviews on everything and did it amazingly. The very last job, I, I was no longer that. I wasn't the best person or the best thing since sliced bread. I was not the best person ever to do that job. And for someone who was an overachiever in school and did really well in everything and got a degree in physics, which is really hard and kind of fancied himself a, a smart guy, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to not be that guy all of a sudden. All of a sudden I wasn't and I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't crap at the job. But by no means was I amazing at the job either. Uh, and ended up in a situation where the company and I parted ways. And the moment was I was at home and I looked at my resume. And I was like the youngest person to do this and do that and had all this success. And I was like, I knew I could get another job. But then I was like, and then what? And I had been very frugal with my money lived far beneath my means and so I had a good savings and I had a mortgage and I figured out that I could Airbnb my place and that would pay my mortgage. I never had any other bills. I owned my car outright and I was like, so I can leave. 
And so I got on the road and just started traveling for fun. I wasn't teaching, wasn't making any money. It was just seeing places. And, and, and back then, any place that I went, I would, I mean, I think I taught, actually, I taught a couple of seminars here in Florida and Georgia before I left. So I had been teaching already seminars, but the plan wasn't that I was going to go and travel the world teaching seminars. The plan was to go see the world. And I think shortly before I left the job, I had done a small world tour. And I remember that was part of what had almost uh, like set me down this path of, of not wanting to just continue because I'd never dreamed of being a corporate guy. I, the problem I had is I never had a dream. I remember that around me, I saw these people like, I want to be a doctor and I want to be a lawyer. They were so confident in their life goals. I never had that. All I knew was I liked the idea of like being an old man and sitting down and regaling my grandkids with stories. Like that, that sounded really romantic to me. So I wanted that. That was it. And then beyond that, I wanted, I wanted to know that like the sweat of my brow meant something. I wanted to know that the hard work that I was putting in had some kind of an impact that I wasn't just digging holes and filling right back in for money. I didn't, didn't want that to be the feeling about what I was doing. And so after only reason I ended up at that company was I didn't know if I wanted to go to grad school because I was terrified when I talked to all the people, all the newly minted physics PhDs that I was talking to for advice were miserable. They weren't happy people. And I talked to one of my professors, one of them that I, prefer, I respected the most. And I was like, hey, like, I need, I need to, what do I do? I was like, no one does anything with a bachelor's of physics. I have to either get a PhD or do something. And I was pretty much told that, like, if I wanted, I could probably be a manager at an engineering company because engineers respect physicists for their big picture view. But frankly, that I probably should have just gotten a damn engineering degree if I wanted to get a job. But this was all like, I was not proactive about this. This was all like a few months before I was about to graduate. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to get this job. And if I hate it, I go to grad school. Well, as I told you, I didn't hate it. They loved me. I loved them. I really loved working at the company. They kept promoting me. All right. But then after I was no longer with the company, I was just like, I don't have a reason to work in this industry and like I enjoyed being a software developer so I thought about tech like that pays well I like it but like I also I didn't dream of being a software developer either at that point in time I was 29 or 30 and I was like I dreamed of having some good stories for my grandkids let's go make some stories let's go travel and then I just kind of fell into it I got lucky that I've been teaching since I was 13 right I've been teaching since I was 13 we also did the performance the Kadas. I was kind of in a way I've been been a performer for a long time so being in front of crowds and public speaking I had a lot of public speaking at my at my job as um as a manager having to talk to groups of people so like I already was good at public speaking and that kind of made it easy that once I I started traveling that I kind of got a lot of no's when I asked people if I could teach a seminar a lot of no's. Uh, what have you won? Some Nagas and some new breeds. And are you a world champion? No. Are you a Pan Am champion? No. Are you a European champion? No. Uh, so why do you think you can teach here? That was kind of the the train of uh, thought that I got. And I was also a pretty new black belt. I'd been, I hadn't, I'd been a black belt for like, I think at that point, either a year or a couple of months. And I would go to open mats and I would just roll with everybody. And I would set myself this set of rules, which was I have to convince these people that I don't suck at jiu-jitsu. 
and I have to convince them that convince them that I'm not an asshole, and not in that order, because at that point in time, I had been hearing rumors that a lot of the people who are currently touring, teaching seminars, were making bad relationships with the gyms. They would, you've been to the, the seminars back in the day where seminars at two, they don't show up till four, or while they're there, they're spending half the time getting the girls' numbers, or they injure students. Like it's all these, all these little. Things that kind of put black eyes on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because of the people who were touring in that era were not professionals. They were really bad motherfuckers. That's what they were. They were great at fighting Jiu-Jitsu. They were great fighters, but they weren't really teachers. And they weren't really professional business owners either. They were guys who were really, really t- gifted at the art of strangling and breaking things. There are people from that era who were separate right they're people who were good teachers even in that era but i benefited from the bad experiences that people around the world had had with those people who were just fighters and so once i showed them like hey i was sitting in the corner teaching one other white belt something or helping people out and i mind you when i'm rolling i'm trying to make sure that i leave a good impression which means i can't get beat up i have to win but i cannot injure anybody in my winning I have to make sure I do so with control. And even also, I, back then, I was thinking of the ego. So if this is the owner of the gym, I am not going to tap him out in front of his students unless he strikes me as one of those people who wants it. Because there's gym owners who are just gym owners. Then there's gym owners that are psychopaths. And by psychopaths, I mean they're still the fighter they were when they were 21 and they still have that fire inside them. And if I'm nice to them, they will lose respect for me. And I have to figure out who you are when I'm rolling with you. Because I'm too nice to you, you're going to think I suck or that I'm soft and you're not going to book me for a seminar. But if you're not that guy and I tap you out in front of your students, I'm going to hurt your pride and your ego and you're not going to invite me back for a seminar. So that was what I learned how to do. I learned the right way to roll with people and to leave the right impression. And people started inviting me for seminars. And then I got a great opportunity for my friend Dan in Taiwan, who just welcomed me to teach in his gym on faith. And... After I taught in his gym and the adventures I had there with him, he actually hooked me up with a spot getting to take the Craig Jones heel hooker camp in Thailand. And so I got to go over there and meet all these people who would be crazy enough to fly all the way to Thailand to take a jiu-jitsu seminar. met a lot of cool people there. And I got recommended to Christian Galgart, which is how I got the gig being sponsored to travel by BJJ Globetrotters and became a teacher for them. And then I got lucky that one of my friends who used to train here in town at Marcelo Garcia's ended up being one of the uh, instructors for Bernardo Faria. And so I got to go train with them using my same method of rolling but not injuring him in there. Managed to leave an impression on Bernardo and those guys. And Mike Zenga asked me to roll one day. And I rolled with him. And then after we finished rolling, I guess he decided I didn't suck at jiu-jitsu and handed me a check and said, would you like to make an instructional for BJJ Fanatics? And I got to make an instructional for BJJ Fanatics. And that was the beginning. And that kind of is what brings me into kind of my current life. Actually, no, that's kind of my previous life. Because at that point, then I was traveling the world about 10 months out of the year, teaching seminars and studying and trying to make instructionals for Fanatics. These days, I'm making a shift this year. I'm still traveling, but I want to be able to do more online stuff so i've started a patreon i'm posting more on instagram and and youtube and i'm designing more instructionals that are going to be on fanatics with the goal of being able to 
do more distance learning and and build people up remotely, whether it be Zoom lessons. I'm going to be doing um, not instructionals because instructionals are usually in a certain format. It's going to be more of an actual course where I want to make actual classes where you would watch the video and you would do this day's video today and then you do tomorrow's video tomorrow and that it actually is taking you through a progression with actual goals and measurable skills that you want to have at the end of this course versus most of the even the best taught instructionals on BJ Fanatics um, mine included it's we're giving you knowledge and we're going to tell you kind of how we want you to develop that knowledge, but it's mostly we're giving you the information processing. And now there's the ecological guys who I love, who are also giving you some games, some ways to practice and build skills. And I think that you need both. I'm not 100% ecological where it's just like all of jiu-jitsu will magically appear if you just play games. But I'm also not just drilling because I've always hated dead drilling. And so I think that that's my, my view on the whole on the whole thing and I hope to be able to make an impact. I've had a really lot of success and really been happy with the Patreon model and being here in Gainesville more and teaching more private lessons. I love private lessons. I love getting to know exactly what your personal problems are and kind of together devise a plan and then get feedback from you as you're like, okay, I did this and we can tweak and guide people and help them on their journey because i only have one body and i have certain gifts and disadvantages and so do you and so getting to solve your problems is like getting to play the game through a second time on a video game as a different character and so like i really love teaching private lessons so beautiful well i know we're going to be mindful of your time people listening how do they find you on social media and what about the website so my name is charles harriet spelled h-a-r-r-i-o-t-t that's pretty much how to find me everywhere so on instagram it's charles harriet on patreon it's patreon.com slash charles harriet on youtube it's charles harriet and on bj fanatics you type in once again my name charles harriet my website is charlesharriet.com so should be pretty easy. I uh, I did pretty good of, of buying up all of my, my internet real estate. My last name is spelt oddly enough that there's not many Charles Harriet's out there. So um, at this point in time, there's a, a special that I'm running, meaning if you join the Patreon uh, this month, you will uh, not only get a 15-minute um, jiu-jitsu diagnostic and other things, but also I'll double it to a half an hour because I realized that I want to just talk to people longer anyway. And kind of set a plan for your jiu-jitsu journey. And I'm going to be teaching a seminar actually today, and um, which probably will be not in the past by the time this gets released, but um, in Palaka, Florida. Then another one next week in Orange Park at Smiley's. And then two weeks after that, I'll be in um, Pensacola. And then my friend Chris Paynes and I are doing a full USA tour. We're starting here in Florida, going through Georgia, Tennessee, over to Austin, Texas, California, Denver, Philadelphia, and Connecticut. And that'll all be in the end of uh, March and April. And all those information will be on my website, charlesharriet.com, in the, in the coming days. Beautiful. Well, we could talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, a time in Osaka, for example. But I would love, I, I we'll want to do a be... part two. I, wanna, I would usually do this. I made the mistake of, uh, of booking something after this. We can do a part two. And this experience is, is once again, just lighting the fire under me to... Uh, to do my own podcast more because I've recorded some. I just haven't had the courage. You've had to actually properly release it. So uh, I'm going to take this as more motivation to uh, release mine. So I'll talk to you. Either we do, I'll have you on my podcast or I'll come back on this one again. <laughs>